Welcome to Rockin' Your Priors. I'm your host, Dr. Alice Evans. Now, here is a question. How is East Asian culture different? So, I have just returned from a month in Hong Kong and South Korea. My first impression is that they are remarkably serene. Travelling on trains and buses, everyone is quiet and considerate. Once, I heard a small group being loud. No surprises, they were American. Indian cities are far noisier. Cars and rickshaws are constantly honking. Cultural heterogeneity can be recorded in decibels. Universities are equally quiet. My lecture at the Chinese University of Hong Kong was very well attended, but few spoke out. Self-censorship was motivated by worries about inadvertent embarrassment. At talks in India, by contrast, the students were always vocal and animated, keen to share their perspectives. Uh, A few weekends ago was Lunar New Year. Supermarkets, street fairs and shopping malls in Hong Kong are decked in red and gold, the colours of luck and money. The most common greeting for New Year is, translated from Cantonese, I hope you get rich. When I visited an older woman, I noticed her glorious nails, painted red, gold and with a lucky cat for money. China's biggest cultural festival is all about wealth. By contrast, when my friends in Mumbai and Bangalore um, celebrate Ganesh Chaturthi, they worship the deity. In Morocco and Turkey, the most important holiday is Eid. When a family in Fez kindly invited me for iftar, there was no mention of money. Crudely, let me try to encapsulate East Asian society's cultural distinctiveness. First, ideals of meritocracy and reverence for education. Second, concern for economic prosperity in this life, trumping the afterlife. And third, um, ideals of collective harmony, concern for family, general harmony and embarrassment, discomfort with speaking out and being rebellious. These cultural idiosyncrasies are generally overlooked because social scientists tend to well, well, social sciences with in-depth regional knowledge usually focus on that place. But without comparativism, we are often blinkered to what is specific to each place. Now, one might presume that India's female employment will rise with economic growth, just as it did in Taiwan, Hong Kong and Singapore. But that would be to ignore Chinese distinctive ideals of meritocracy and materialism, as well as the absence of moralizing supernatural punishment. This culture mediated 20th century growth. Women seized economic opportunities in East Asia so their families could prosper. Culture also shapes feminist activism. If students thrive, thrive sorry, by listening to their teachers and respecting authorities, they may become introverted. Seldom seeing others' dissent, they may infer that everyone else internalises these ideals and will punish deviation. Eager for social approval, they may self-censor. Thus, 
Even if the country democratizes, women may remain reluctant to challenge sexist discrimination. This is a three-part podcast series examining the cultural evolution of meritocracy, materialism and collectivism. The first two raise female labour force participation, while the third suppresses dissent. Together, they help explain East Asia's distinctive gender relations. So today, let's talk about meritocracy, these ideals of upward mobility. So imperial China was extremely hierarchical. The rulers were deemed better than the ruled. It also propagated ideologies of meritocracy and social mobility. Confucius, in 6th century BCE, championed education and exams so that the meritocratic few could rise to become rulers. Influential philosopher Mo Tzu in uh, 5th century BCE likewise emphasised, and I quote, If capable, even a farmer would be employed, commissioned with high rank, remunerated with liberal emoluments, trusted with important charges, and empowered to issue final orders. Ranks should be standardised according to virtue. Lord Chang, a statesman in 4th century BCE, um, similarly stated, In neither high nor low office should there be automatic hereditary succession. Sun Tzu, a leading Confucian in 3rd century BCE, likewise declared that an educated, virtuous commoner could be elevated to become prefect or prime minister. Now, in the 7th century CE, Empress Wu Zetian opened up the civil service exams. Any man who passed could become an esteemed official. China became more meritocratic. The bureaucracy was expanded to collect tax revenue and consolidate control. Stories of commoners passing the exams and gaining prestige became the opium of the masses. Biographies tell of tradesmen, craftsmen and peasant farmers' sons becoming high-ranking officials. We also see this in Chinese proverbs. Let me quote, Golden mansions and Yen Yu Yu, that's the abstract paragon of female beauty, are both to be found in books. There's another expression, generals and ministers are not originally blue-blooded, and so a man of ambition should aim high. Another Chinese proverb, a bequest of a chest of gold is not as valuable to your descendants as teaching them a basic classic. So there's real reverence of education and ideals of mobility. Now, the Ming dynasty... Um, from the 14th to 17th centuries, sought to legitimise their role and rule and construct a system of governance. They built the Forbidden City, they restored the Grand Canals and promoted education. Private academies flourished after 1500. Candidates rocked to the examin- flocked to the examination hall to see their exam result. The officialdom was glorified, achieving the highest examination decree, Xin Shi, was especially prestigious. Prosperous Shang Shi'i in the 16th century hired a famous local scholar to teach his two sons. After one passed the provincial examinations, his wife jubilantly declared, now we can finally get ourselves out of this trade business. 
education was also esteemed intrinsically. Scholars were the highest rank. Novels, poems and paintings glorified them as uniquely virtuous. As a Chinese saying goes, literati families are generations with fragrances of books, while wealthy merchants carry the stink of bronze. Meritocracy was thus legitimised by Confucianism, institutionalised by imperial dynasties and made credible through storytelling. None of this is to deny rampant nepotism or inherited privileges. My point is more cultural. Chinese dynasties revered education and social mobility for all. They recognised everyone as having a legitimate place at upward mobility, which is very different from India's caste system. Now, Confucianism also lacked a concept of moralizing supernatural punishment. While people were supposed to show filial piety by honoring their ancestors, cleaning graves, making offerings, paying respects, there was no concept of karma or divine punishment. In this respect, Confucianism sharply diverges from Christianity, Judaism, Hinduism and Islam. Earthly behaviour did not determine one's place in heaven. Exemplary persons, Junzi, adhered to the principles of benevolence, righteous propriety, fidelity and wisdom. By acting virtuously, they honoured their ancestors. So, how did China differ culturally? Well, my suggestion is that China's imperial rulers propounded Confucian ideology that social hierarchy was determined by individual merit. Emperors, philosophers, keju civil service examinations, painters and storytellers all glorified meritocracy and reverence for education, as well as greatness in this world, not the afterlife. South Asian, Middle Eastern, North African and European cultures put far greater reverence and emphasis on spirituality. Hinduism emphasizes inheritance and karma, and Bekka, minister of law and justice, who became a Buddhist, likened the caste system, and I quote, to a multi-story tower with no staircase and no entrance. Everyone had to die in the story they were born in. The division of labor brought about by the caste system is not a division based on choice. Individual sentiment, individual preference has no preference, has no place in it. It is based on the dogma of predestination. Hinduism also emphasizes karma. If a person and or group fulfills their moral duties, dharma, they are reborn in better circumstances. The ultimate goal is to achieve spiritual liberation and moksha. Today, religion is very important to 85% of Indians. Meanwhile, in the Middle East and North Africa, Islamic rulers empowered clerics who preached obedience to the rulers, entrenched Sharia law and persecuted religious minorities. Ahmet Kuru calls this the Ulema State Alliance. Religious authoritarianism perpetuated piety in the pursuit of paradise. Heaven and hell remain hugely important concepts to Muslims. 99.8% of Egyptians express belief in hell. England used to be similarly devout. Uh, religious divisions provoked war and martyrdom. But from the 17th century, books increasingly explored science and secular progress.
So let me sum up this this first in the trilogy on South Asian culture. Confucianism is often depicted negatively. Scholars usually stress authoritarianism and hierarchy, rote learning and patriarchy. That's all true. But I suggest they omit something profoundly important. Confucianism idealized meritocracy and earthly esteem. Confucians never feared eternal damnation or torture. There was no hell or naraka. Now, why does this matter for gender? Well, in future podcasts, I'll suggest that meritocracy, secularism and materialism propounded, propelled female labour force participation, while collective harmony suppressed feminist activism. Stay tuned for the next episodes. But thank you very much for listening, and I hope you're all well. Take care.